I'm so confused of what's going on in the news. The workplaces are adapting. What does that mean? Hi, I'm Allison. And hi, I'm Rocco. And that was Shreyas you just heard there. We're part of Etho, and this is the Irrational Expectations podcast. Each episode, Shreyas picks out an article from the Daily News that's got him confused. Allison and I are here to help him. Today's article I chose was from Bloomberg, a classic, titled UBS Considers Workplace Changes in U.S. After Staff Feedback. So just for background about what the article actually talks about, UBS is an investment banking company, and the bank is seeking to improve its engagement with underrepresented communities. It plans to do initiatives such as financial literacy programs in low and moderate income communities as well. And this is largely motivated by a higher percentage of an employee base speaking out on social issues and advocating for more societal issues to be represented. Additionally, workers are also demanding more flexibility in their job as well as more personal time. UBS is also releasing diversity numbers and increasing their transparency on how they pay individuals. So my first question, though, is how popular is this practice for companies, especially investment banking companies? Okay, so we've seen this sort of wave of interest in societal issues and what role companies have to play in addressing them, like role all across a lot of different industries, right? Finance is not the only one. I've definitely seen a lot of uptake on these sorts of issues in investment banks, right? I have seen like it's flooded my social media posts right on LinkedIn. I've seen these firms talking about how they want to hire more people from ethnic minority backgrounds and what they're doing to encourage women to apply for internships and things like that, right? Sort of leadership programs aimed at marginalized backgrounds. So it's definitely not just a single company doing this. It is just it's just making the headlines because it is such a giant in in finance. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I guess my only uh, concern would be, well, if it did make the headlines, it should also be representative and talk about, I guess, a general trend, right? But this article seemed to, maybe this is the fault of the article itself, which is also something I think it's important for us to go over. But it does mention a general trend, but with no backed up sense of data. And if anything, towards the end, they even mentioned how only 4% of the workforce is black and less than 40% are female. So they still emphasize that we're still not making too much progress. So how would we kind of, I guess, measure the kind of improvement that we at least perceivably see in our culture regarding the increase of minority representation and upper level jobs? Okay, I think it's important to note that, yeah, there's a sort of framing issue going on here, right? Because uh, those numbers you saw four forty percent at the bottom of the bottom of the article, it was actually quite good in terms of progress, right? Around 40% of the workforce being women is a big improvement for finance, right? Which is typically one of the most uh, white male-dominated industries that, that you could find. But I think just overall, when you kind of look at the pattern, uh, generally, when you have these older businesses, they really aren't dynamic. It's what we talk about many times, how a young company is much more dynamic and much better as far as, well, everything, basically. That's why they are able to beat out the market that way. And when you have these old, you know, traditional banks with old standards, that bias, unfortunately, just seeps in there and it keeps present. So you really do need these very active efforts. And while you do see, you know, some banks doing a little bit here, a little bit there, the numbers, they, they speak for themselves. It's clearly not enough to make a noticeable progress. And you need to really adjust and restructure the HR departments in a significant way to cut back on the amount of bias that exists, you know, within each company. But I think the reason why UBS was particularly pointed out in this is because they realized they had a bit of a PR issue. So they they really pushed it 
as opposed to some others. Because if you look back a year ago, there were articles about another bank doing stuff like this. So you, you see these articles once in a while. And to an extent, given the frequency of which I kind of see these once in a while, always one bank and not really the others mentioned, I can't help shake the feeling that it's at least partly just a heavily, heavily, you know, publicized PR stunt. Because simply, I, I, I don't know, it, it just doesn't sit right with me looking at the bottom line with the numbers. Two things from, from me, right? First off, I have seen like this one exception that kind of proves the rule. In my mind, there was some initiative to hire X number of black men across the industry. I saw this recently on my LinkedIn. Seemed like a sort of coordinated effort from a lot of different institutions and companies, right? On, the, on a second note, right, I think an issue here is that unless you want these companies to engage in quite a lot of positive discrimination, there's going to be a lot of cases where there are issues that investment banks or any sort of company by itself can really address without other more grassroots societal efforts. Yeah, I think you're right there in part where, you know, if you have a business, the leadership has risen up there over a long time. So changes on uh, the hiring level are going to take some time to propagate. But the fact is you see these kind of articles for years and I've seen them for a very long time happening you know once in a while you see this and that's why i don't have that much confidence in it because it's a recurring cycle of oh they're doing something and then you don't hear about it for like six months oh and then the another bank is doing something and then you don't hear about it about for six months and then six months later the same bank that did it a year ago is in the press again for it and you know, I understand it may be because it's an iterative process, so they get in, get some public news about it. But I don't know. Still, it, it feels like it's it's just better looking at the newer businesses which have the opportunity to structure properly. And it is the beauty of the free market that those new businesses will beat out these more traditional ones unless they also adapt. Well, it is a bit arguable whether or not that is actually a beauty of the market, which is something for another time. But I think... Yeah, I totally agree, at least from my initial impression, that a lot of these companies that do end up doing stuff like this, it's purely for optics, right? They get so much positive press and so much attention for doing a little bit of, of good in terms of representation or numbers. But I guess why I picked this article is I'm also particularly interested in the employees starting to care about societal issues. So I was wondering, in investment banking, is there kind of a personal benefit or personal incentive to care about societal issues as being part of that firm? All right. So unless you're really high up, there's not going to be any direct profit motive there for the individual. And like, come on, a lot of this is going to be just people honestly caring, perhaps inspired by the heritage or friends and stuff, caring about these issues, which they're championing inside the workplace. But I will admit that probably like probably virtue signaling or something like that does play a role. The idea of maybe gaining an edge other people internally perhaps that is something that comes into play but hey yeah i think one thing to kind of look at is if people really champion it then it kind of helps them based on because it's kind of the right thing to do but no one's gonna really advance them far far up just based on something like that and no one's gonna see them within the business but i think if they do the opposite and they are just like oh no this is a problem and they're you know they, they speak out on a lot of controversial things in a problematic way let's call it <laughs> there is definitely a trend especially investment banking and some other sectors that unless they're very integrated within the company they will get fired and they will get removed so at least to some extent there is kind of a pressure to be leading one way and it's a question of is it the right thing to do i would say you know 
they are very controversial and if it goes very much against the company values, then I suppose you know it would be the right thing. But when you look at these companies, you can't say those are their values. If you look at their history, what they do, how they invest and all that, it just again, it just doesn't sit right. It, they're, they aren't the ones that, like the business isn't the one representing these values if you look at anything they do. So just firing someone for kind of standing for equally bad values that the company has, it just doesn't, I, I don't know, it just feels very wrong to me that they're, they, they just pretend, oh, this is bad, but then they just do the same stuff uh, in kind of in secret, let's call it. Well, not going to be exactly the same sort of stuff, right? Because some guy who's like anti-gay rights or something in, in a firm isn't doing the same sort of wrong or like propagating the same sort of bad values as a company which invests in secretly helps some developing countries prime minister embezzle money right so those are those are not on the same i would say to extent can be because if you look at those developing countries prime oh, ministers okay. who flagship you know who flagship those values oh, look at me. what they stand for look at what they promote in those countries uh, yeah just, you I think... just thought of the malaysian guy razak right very good point there actually i walked right into it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah actually oh, i actually yeah. yeah so i i agree and i'm going to take the cynicism a little bit further right because I, I, I'm liking this cynical take on <laughs> how these companies are reacting. I think these companies are probably smart enough to know, or at least most of the capital world, I guess, <laughs> however you want to call it, most companies know about the fact that if they have a reputation of being belonging to a particular industry or having a set of values historically that are have nothing to do with anything related to diversity or societal issues. I think we might even see an increase in companies that specifically emphasize a value or at least say that their values are in promoting diversity or promoting kind of societal issues when in reality it's just for optics or they don't care about it at all. Yeah, no, I just want to kind of comment on one part of what you said is where, you know, the history. You know, a business can pivot, like the leadership can change and they can change their values. What stands out to me is the fact when they're still promoting, well, they're pushing forward the problematic values on one side in Malaysia, let's say, meanwhile firing people for it, you know, on their domestic market. It's very two-faced. If there's a, if there's just a history of it and then they admit that history and they try to change, well, you know, businesses can change. It's just a rotation of people. And I, and I don't have such a problem with it when it's only about their history that's problematic. But when it's what they do right now, that's the biggest issue because that's actively hypocritical. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think this actually inspired a tangent for me in considering, well, if optics matter, right, and optics can influence things like how they treat their workers or even things like how much time workers get off or the kind of settings workers are in, how does optics play a role in bargaining power for labor? Yeah, so that's a really good question. From what I'm thinking about this, yeah, these optics, the power of optics and the discourse surrounding, say, like issues around race and sexuality uh, in our culture in America and, say, Western Europe, the way that's shaped, yeah, sure, for workers are going to get bargaining power, but I don't think that's the sort of bargaining power that that's then applicable towards personal interests, right, where you're lobbying then for higher pay or something like that or looking, looking for an advance in the business, right? You get power. You're given power by the shape of political discourse in the modern day, but you can only apply that in a very restricted setting, right? And sort of lobbying for very direct efforts on the part of the company, maybe pressuring higher management to start some initiative, right? Or encouraging a different way of speaking, a different tone, perhaps, 
in some meetings when you talk to a person one-on-one. I think that's where the bargaining power comes in, in very different sort of power dynamics and negotiations than what we typically think of as an economic setting, right? This bargaining power isn't going to get applied to help yourself directly, monetarily. Well, the article seems to indicate, though, that they're also demanding for more flexibility in their job as well as like personal time. Mm-hmm. So I guess would your answer to that be, well, they might succeed on the front of promoting financial literacy programs, but they might not succeed when it comes to trying to advance their own work life, I guess, like their conditions for work. I think here you, what you have to look at is what are they championing and what kind of a business it is. Because I have acquaintances which have told me that, you know, they, they pushed for their values within the business because they believed it was right. They The business needed to change. And as a result, they basically got walled in at their current role with everyone around them getting promoted and they're still stuck in the same place. And based on my experience of knowing them, I don't believe that they are worse than the people around them. And, you know, in their particular area that they work in, I believe they're more skilled than many of the people that work within those roles. So I think so for some controversial discussions, I would say definitely that can even harm the career. And it's something I see people be quite scared of. But if you talk about stuff like, you know, a four day work week or, you know, maternity leave and things like this which are trying to help the employees be more satisfied at the company but don't present a clear image issue where the company is clearly doing something wrong that can help in a way but once again we have to come back to kind of a stereotype where the unionist uh, kind of worker won't get promoted and it is kind of unfortunate to see that the employees who really push for better conditions for themselves and those around them do have a tendency to kind of get stuck in their position. Thus, it's quite discouraged in many companies. Look, I see your point there on sort of broader aspect of like how the specific individuals who push for societal issues could suffer from that. I definitely know some people myself who have been put in similar situations. I am going to say, though, that like bring it back to what Shreyas is talking about. I just can't help but think about how about how we saw that big conflagration with the whole Goldman Sachs first-year analysts sending around that slide complaining about their work hours, right? I think I was looking through LinkedIn at the time. I've said I've talked about LinkedIn too many times on in this recording, but I was looking at LinkedIn and like a good chunk of the comments, right, were just them saying well, they know what they signed up for. I don't think that ultimately the bargaining power that is derived from really sort of controversial political debates that are ongoing right now in our society are going to translate into allowing these workers uh, these employees in these sort of industries to push for that much better working hours or significantly more pay, right? I think that's if that happens, that's going to be sort of independent of the result of any of these political debates. I don't think we're at that stage in society where we care that much about the pressing welfare concerns, right, of these workers who are employed in in finance. It's just not it's not a sexy issue. It's not glamorous. It's not obviously appalling, right? With no counter arguments. There's just not much application of the bargaining power, of the political bargaining power to these situations. Yeah, that makes sense. I I just think, I guess, with regards to political issues, then that would mean we have to make something like 
labor things about working conditions a political issue if we want to see noticeable <laughs> improvements in those areas. But I want to ask about something else as well. The article talked about a financial literacy program oh, God. that UBS plans to implement. How are they distributed generally and how does it does it like go to those who need it? Because I can't really imagine a financial literacy program being too affordable. No, no. Or so too there's helpful. so much. <laughs> us and I are both just really want to get into this, right? Because, oh my God. So like, first off, I want to just claim like finders keepers because I was the guy who got that email from UBS many months ago talking about, oh, we're doing this free seminar stuff. Do you want to join this, right? And so I joined. It was really, it was quite good, right? Some really nice banker who'd been in there for decades or something just giving this talk. And then, then I looked at to the other offerings which they recommended I go check out, right? And Allison can sort of channel his first shock when I explained to him what was up like half an hour ago. Let me, let me just put a pause in there. Okay. Like, just, just prepare yourself. <laughs> a simple course that teaches, well, the kind of stuff we talk about here on the podcast. And it's for 10 days of that. Just think in your head, what number would you expect that to cost? Yeah. It costs $12,500 without tax. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, okay. Oh. That's just okay, so that that's that's kind of what I mean, right? Like this is just insanely overpriced and they claim that it gets sent to lower and quote moderate income families, but yeah. I think here uh so, so there's kind of an addition here uh, that I want to add to clarify. These financial literacy programs, those are designed to be free. They're the kind of free course yeah, that, exactly. you know, Rocco attended. But, but having seen what uh, the kind of level of stuff they teach yeah, sure, it's useful. And this stuff doesn't even get taught at schools. But the level of how it's used to then market their incredibly overpriced courses mm -hmm. is shocking. And you, you have to realize, if they're targeting the low-income families, for them, that $12,500, that's not just a lot of money. Yeah. That could be half a year's worth of income dude it's more than that they probably had saved at any point up to then right and look look i'm just gonna like give ubs a tiny break here and just say that well look uh yeah they're aiming these financial literacy programs at like uh lower income families and yes these really overpriced courses are aimed instead at like students like me say like people who are perhaps from like richer backgrounds but still for a giant like uh, ubs which is in a very good position financially to like talk about financial liter literacy and things like this and put the effort into producing this educational content and then to paywall some of the most useful stuff uh, behind huge, huge prices like this is a bit uh, shocking. It does leave a little bit of a bad taste. Uh, and I just want to say, like I, I had a look through some of the material. Like, yeah, it's useful, but it's nothing that advanced. Like it's, you know... If I was going to talk about, uh, you know, some complicated strategy, so how I can use an iron condor to mitigate risk during a highly volatile market on my position, which is shorting so I can actually cover, right? We could get into a very complicated position. And there, you know, I can understand saying, oh, you're going to charge a lot of money for it because it's not something you can easily just Google. But majority of the content that they list as they teach, as they teach, you can find that on YouTube for free. But how much and was that? How much was that Excel course they had? Because 
It was like three grand, I think. It's, fifteen hundred, fifteen hundred, or three, something like that. Like in the four figures, right? And it shocks me because if you want to find like the best possible place to learn Excel, you'd be far better off just going to freaking Coursera and paying like really low three figures for a really fantastic like the Excel like business specialization course, which is like something that lasts six months. It's fantastic, right? And just so much more valuable than what they're selling here, which is their brand name. Yeah. Or can you and just I do like wanna, use Google and mess around on Excel? I don't know. You, you, like, I think you absolutely can. I just want to kind of comment on that because I was, I was going to just say exactly uh, what you were saying. Like the Excel, just Googling around, absolutely an option. And they would argue, oh, the value there is because it's all compiled. Mm. Well, that is actually exactly what we're trying to do. Exactly. Like we're trying to create a program and, you know, education and material and everything. So you have all that and far more advanced and in my opinion, better explained because you can combine it with the hands-on experience once we launch our, you know, the full platform. With the papers already integrated, yeah. Yeah, but it's all free. We like, I, I strongly believe this access advantage should be free, and just seeing them charge so much money, it's just disgusting. Like, I, I don't know what else to call it. It's just disgusting. Financial education is like one of the most, one of the easiest sort of forms of education that you should argue is democratized, right? That is made available to pretty much everyone, right? And it's just, UBS doesn't need this this extra money here, right? So it's just disappointing, this sort of thing. Especially there, like, look, I understand if this was, you know, because I, I, you know, I think last year I found out about some awkward derivative from the US that was called Turbos that I'd never heard of before. Isn't that from Germany? Yeah, yeah, I so said, like, uh, did I say Germany? I may have misspoke. The US or something I said. <laughs> Oh, sorry. No, I understand Germany. Yes, I found out about it. And it took me like three days to actually understand it and start thinking about how I would use it. Because that paperwork was just the documentation they give. They don't explain it well. And it's inaccessible to the retail investor as far as understanding it if they don't have a lot of experience. And I would understand if they were teaching around stuff like that. Again, like I talked about before. Sure. And we, I, I personally, I want even that to be free. Like I want to educate on all of this as much as Absolutely. I can because it is... It should be democratized. It should be as accessible as possible. But for stuff like that, I would understand it. But this is just ridiculous. Like, I, I know I keep repeating it, but I, Rocco, because like, we looked at this kind of recently. Like half an hour just ago. describe how stunned Dude, I was. Like, the shock, the freaking, the shout that Allison gave as he, like, as he saw the figure load on his web screen. Like, I'm looking at him on the camera. It was, it was hilarious. <laughs> it was just... I I just like looked at the number and just thought, ah, of course. Why am I why am I all surprised? Right. Forgotten about like three or four months ago and then went on to just sort of do effort with, with everyone else here, right? And uh yeah, just now I'd forgotten just how bad a lot of what UBS does on the education front is, right? Yeah, no, especially yeah, like the reason my shock. <laughs> <laughs> like the th- comparing this to for example like the offerings of some of the banks I uh bank with, like I was shocked when they told me they wanted I think it was 60K, so it's about $2,000 for some of their more decent financial education courses. But then, you know, they're not like a major, major bank, the one I'm referring to. But then UBS charging so much, it's, I don't know, it, it just seems insane to me. But we should probably move on because I could spend yeah. hours just complaining about the ridiculousness of this. And I'm really glad I have the opportunity with FO to try to address this. Absolutely. I as well. Yeah. I only have one more question, and it's probably a real quick question. It's just how much does increased representation within a company 
end up actually mattering in terms of how it impacts anything really including that company like if i'm an all-white firm right and i hire like a couple of minorities wouldn't the representation be still inherently limited and suppressed in voice so i'll just say right off the bat that like i think it's really important to note here that the sort of implication that might be hiding here right i'm not saying that you're saying this Shreyas, but the idea that maybe you could approach this issue by saying oh you got an old white male firm could we just fire half the men and replace them with women or fire 10% of uh, white employees and replace it with black people. Two major issues with this is that number one, it's just, of course, not fair, right? Like, why would you take someone who's done no wrong, right, and just fire them, replace them with someone else? This is not some sort of party where you can just bake another cake. You've got limits on how many people you can employ as a successful business. And second off, like, there is going to be a limit on how many people you can actually find to employ at these higher levels, especially. Right, because a lot, a lot of these skills that you build up over decades in finance, you can't just take some graduate uh, straight out of college and employ them Im- immediately at those higher levels. Right, a lot of these these issues aren't going to be solvable by companies. You need to tackle this earlier on at the college, at the primary school level, at the sort of childcare level, and all these things. Yeah, and I just want to kind of add on uh, to the diversity side more towards the question uh, Shreyas asked, where look look at the product because these are banks which have many products. And if you have a greater diversity of backgrounds, not just, you know, having all white men and then diversifying that by also having, you know, rich white women or something like that, but by having true, you know, diversity and a a real range of backgrounds from different countries, from different cultures, from different levels of wealth and education and all that, I think that is a massive opportunity for those banks because even just let's let's just go completely 100% on the numbers side. Right. The products and ideas you will come up with with a diverse team who understands a range of different backgrounds will be far superior because they can point out issues that you may not realize otherwise. For example, let's talk about, you know, the structure of loans. If you have all loans designed by people who are incredibly wealthy, they will assume, oh, you're not going to get a mortgage for your first house. No, you're, you're taking out loans to buy 20 more houses. They would ne- you're not going to think about, oh, right, you also need that loan for the first house. So if you have a, ra- you know, if you have a bigger range of backgrounds, someone's going to be like, oh, right, we need a mortgage for the first-time home buyer. Now, of course, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm ridiculously simplifying it in a kind of a exaggerated hypothetical, but that's essentially it. If you have a more diverse range of backgrounds and cultures and all that, you will come up with better products. So it just even just on the numbers side for those businesses, it makes sense. Like they yeah, really ev- should do it. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And I, I agree there's tons of literature out there supporting the idea that diversity actually supports economics. But Rocco, back to yeah. your point as well, that was actually the reason I posed the question is maybe none of these actual answers for any kind of societal issues, right? Instead, they should be promoting actual programs that help people, which their financial literacy program seems really skeptical, Mm. really suspicious (laughs) for doing so. I would say one thing, right, which is that I don't want to like attack these, some of these programs that they have too much, right? Because they do have to start somewhere. And if you're bringing on a couple kids of African heritage, right, and you're bringing them into your company, putting them into maybe some leadership roles or giving them an experience of how that works, that's probably the best place to start because it may not make much of a tangible difference right now. They might still feel a bit marginalized, right, because of the overwhelmingly white male work environment that they're entering. But in 30 years, those people who started off at the bottom will be in management positions, right? And that's when things will be much better. 
I'm inclined to agree to an extent, but personally, I want those businesses to just crash and fail and let new businesses take up the space. Same. Because a new business will be more dynamic. It's, it's all I, I always talk about this and I always get into it, but a new young business has the opportunity to do this right from the start. So if I get the choice for something like this, I would always go with a young business for the education that accessible for everyone. Let us at Etho do it because, you know, we're, we're a young business. We are, we can actually adapt to this instead of taking 50 decades to slowly transfer. We're saying this though. We're saying this until we become an old business and established business. Right. And then we're just going to be buying up poor new businesses. Right. So. I think, look, I, I think if, if you know, like 60 years, we become like an old slow business. We deserve to die. So. I would be more than happy to see a young business who can do better than us succeed because I love to see when like, even if it's my own company failing, if someone else is doing better on the market and I cannot match that, they have every right to beat me. They have every right to drive my company to the ground so they can do better for everyone else. And this at least is one place where I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly with like Alice's sort of libertarian sentiment here. Yeah, this is just, this is the place where this like, it's a free market here. Uh, we're we're gonna live or die on the backs of our product. So, yeah, notice that what they bothers said the caveat me. is sixty years. <laughs> <laughs> what Sorry. really bothers me though is how so many you know banks and institutions are you know like too big to fail. Yeah. Well, how are you gonna fix the problem if you don't allow new businesses to push them out? These too big to fail scenarios are just harmful oh. for for the people. If you if they let those businesses suffer a bit more and open up space for younger, more dynamic, more ethical, more sustainable and suitable and socially conscious and with better governance and everything else. Those young businesses would bring on change and the right kind of change so much faster than being like, oh, this bank is too big to fail. Let's keep supporting them to the full extent so they can continue to operate in this shitty and slow way. I mean, we're brushing over a lot of things right here. Like We're brushing over efficiency reasons and perhaps the role of national champions in a broader strategy. But hey, uh, I do agree with all that, Like especially when it comes to a lot of the financial institutions in America. Somewhere down the road, I do want to go down this line of questioning again, because I think this also implies that if you kind of encourage certain types of small businesses then those small businesses would promote a better market economy oh, absolutely. and a more socially conscious market economy. So what kinds of ways to do that would be something I'm interested in going forward. Yeah. But I would just like to sum everything up since we've spent a ton of time talking about all of these things. But yeah, so mostly our conversation today, I think just revolved around talks about diversity, right? And how, how big companies are not adopting for these kinds of changes in the best way. They usually do it for optics. They usually have these kinds of programs that end up being really expensive, even if they're marketed towards those who need it. I would be interested in looking at an actual example where a big company did actually impact or and demonstrated their impact on lower income uh, people for financial literacy or any kind of marginalized groups. I think it's also interesting to look at the fact that in conjunction with caring about societal issues, these workers are also trying to advocate for better working conditions. And I want to explore how do we make that 
a better scenario? How do we make those kind of initiatives more successful as well? But generally speaking, I don't know how much I care about investment banking companies. I don't know how much I care about the people in it. I don't know. But yeah, I, I enjoyed this. And yeah, thank you guys. <laughs>